the Business and Leadership Podcast with Jared Graybeal. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Jared Graybeal. And on today's episode, we have brought you another uh, wildly interesting interview. We've got Nick Jankel on today. And Nick is a thought leader whose ideas, tools, and research are designed to take the pain out of transformation, uh, help you blast through the barriers that block creativity, and unleash conscious changes in leadership and in life that bring less suffering and more thriving into the places and spaces that we touch. Nick has lectured at Yale Oxford. He's done a TEDx talk. He's advised the UK's prime minister, and uh, he's worked with companies like Nike, Microsoft, Kellogg. So if none of that sounds familiar, um, you probably have been living under a rock. Um, Also, Nick has recently published a book called Now Lead the Change, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, Nick, thanks for being on the show. How are you today? Oh, great. Great to be here. Great to um, talk about two things that are um, enormously um, exciting to me and just endlessly exciting and endlessly generative, uh, both my journey as a leader uh, and working with leaders and my work as entrepreneur working with businesses. And so these are two parts of my life that, um, yeah, the, the the learnings that you get from fully engaging in these areas are priceless. The best yeah. personal development course you can't buy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to get into it as well. I watched your TED Talk and obviously did some um, research and, of course, the book. So uh, I'm excited to get into it. Nick, if you could sum it up maybe uh, in the shortest possible way, how did you get to where you are today? Like what's the uh, snapshot of your journey? Oh, I've got a very long version, but I won't do that. I'll do the short version. Um, so nutshell, uh, went to medical school, wanted to be a doctor, wanted to be a psychiatrist, um, working with minds, um, ended up falling into consumer psychology uh, in an ad- advertising agency, dot com came along, all very exciting, uh, set up a business, uh, age 24, um, to, I guess, reinvent and disrupt the marketing industry, um, particularly around um, creativity that wasn't linked to a medium or a specific product or service uh, to sell strategic creativity. That became an innovation company. And then over the years, I realized that innovation does not work. Whichever level you're at, if the people in the organization, particularly the leaders of the organization, can't go on their own journey of innovation and discover for themselves the future of their space and then implement it over the months, often years, and sometimes decades it takes um, to really bring a disruptive transformational change into the world. And so that got me into leadership. And you see a little story, a circle there because leadership development is actually uh, a form of psychiatry. So I ended up doing what I wanted to always do, um, but just in a radically different world that I didn't even know existed when I was you know, 17, 18, who does? Yeah, I agree. That's so Nick, what do you, how do you spend your time these days? Um, what does your day to day week to week look like now? Ooh, um, so I, um, I'm developing a, a theory of, of, of change of leadership of innovation called biotransformation theory. Uh, it's actually called biotransformation theory and practice. So Half of my time, I guess, I spend developing the theory, reading up on brain science, um, wisdom from 
millennia ago, um, new ideas, new techniques, new technologies. So it's the theory part. Um, so I'm a theorist, but I'm also a practitioner. So I am either sharing keynotes or running leadership programs or running um, life change programs. I don't do one-to-one coaching anymore, but I do run programs for groups of leaders uh, to come together. And so I like to always be one foot in practice, um, working with people. And I like to have one foot in theory to push forward our tools and practices. And I guess underneath all that, I run my own, you know, we run our own business. So I'm always doing some weird thing to do with, I don't know, marketing yeah. or all whatever random that. Yeah. thing that needs to be done that day that no one else seems to be able to do. Yeah, 100%. I can <laughs> that. Now, Nick, from, uh, from what I know, you believe conventional leadership and uh, management thinking was developed to maintain the status quo. That was something that stood out to me, not yeah. to transform it. What do you mean yeah. by that? So if you look back, as I have done, um, on the development of management thinking, um, management science, which is an interesting term that they call it science, um, and really most of, le- I would say most of conventional leadership work is really management sort of 2.0, you know, souped up management um, its primary role is to create predictable returns on uh, a set of investments um, by tweaking the model, um, improving the efficiency of the machines and the human machines that support the actual machines. Um, in other words, its interest is not in disruption. Its interest is not in innovation and creativity in, or even compassion or sustainability. Its interest is in tweaking the industrial machines that it developed around um, to be more efficient, which is great. I do some of that every day for myself, for my team. Um, I love efficiency and I love management. But if you are, if you think of management as focused on tweaking best practice in whatever area, to tweak the model, tweak, 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 um, continuous improvements, small changes, uh, maybe a new IT system every now and again. Um, it's not business is not to invent the future or or to challenge your own business model and disrupt it before someone else does. That's not its area. So we need more than management to exist in the world today. Uh, we need more than management science because on the one hand, all of us are maintaining some status quo. We all have businesses that we run and we like to maintain them, um, I think. Most people do. Um, and that means tweaking the model and making it more efficient and making more money for less inputs uh, or more impact and money. Um, but at the same time, all of us, particularly this year, obviously, but really, it's going to get more and more challenging. We all have to be able to adapt our models, our products, our services, our people, our processes, um, think new thoughts, um, and what I call next practice. We have to de- develop next practice. And so conventional leadership thinking wasn't developed for that. It was um, just wasn't part of its remit. Um and so I guess my life's work in part has been about how do you teach people how to do what hasn't been taught before for themselves in their own industry? Because I'm not an expert in their industry, but I am an expert in the tools of transformation, um, the techniques. And that's, so that's kind of uh, what I speak to in terms of this distinction between management and tr- effective creative leadership. Yeah. So hypothetical scenario here, if you're running an organization, Nick, do you think that everyone should be geared towards innovation or do you think there should be a management team and then an innovation team? Um, Both. So um, I think that the traditional hierarchy where 
someone sees something that could be changed for a customer in a store uh, on an assembly line, they have to run it up the flagpole and get 12 committees and five people. And, you know, the madness of that insane, too slow. They've got to adapt quicker than that. They see it every day. They're with the pe- the people you they you know most people who actually do customer service are not at the top of an organization. So you need to effectively give people some form of creative problem solving, um, empowerment technology techniques at the coalface. But or and at the same time, most everyday people don't want to have big, huge, disruptive innovation thoughts, systemic change programs, um, visions of a future of uh, industry. And they really don't want to have to be responsible for making them happen. And so I think you also need a sort of uh, team of uh, innovation experts at the center who part of their job is to help the people at the coalface innovate. But most of their job is the big disruptive thinking of the future. And they spend their whole life thinking, you know, breathing and leaving it. But they never get into an ivory tower um and get away from the people you know they're still plugged into the people um but they're paid to have the big thoughts and have the big responsibilities so it's a it's a both and that's a that's an interesting thought another sidebar here when we talk about teams um and i i own a small business i imagine your leadership practice would still be considered a small business but i'm fascinated with executive level leadership fortune 500 which is probably a lot of the people you work with yeah so i say that to say like when you look at team building and running organizations especially large organizations with thousands of people do you think it's most efficient to somehow have small teams throughout large organizations or do you think there's a point where 50 people 100 people that's okay to be a quote-unquote team really great question i don't think there's a one-size-fits-all actually i think it's so dependent upon culture and um, the way an organization works rather than the size. Obviously, there are numbers that we hear about, you know, 150, 20, whatever, that sort of signify complexity challenges that you go beyond that and things just become very challenging. Um, We just don't know people, we don't trust people, all that kind of stuff. And one thing I will say is innovation, is uh, trust is the lubricant of innovation. It's extremely hard to deliver anything any transformation or innovation in your organization without trust, high levels of trust. So whatever you need to do to build that trust, whether it's over a thousand or 20 or five, you've got to do it. Um, I did actually write a book called Become a Transformational Organization, which really looked at this, which has looked at how you structure, what's the minimal viable structure for adaptation and transformation. Um, and I use some examples in there where there are some big companies that break themselves down into small sub-companies um, or small sort of profit and loss centers that run themselves, and that seems to work. Um, but I don't think anyone has cracked the code on one you know, one way of organizing that's going to work for everyone. I mean, some people love this sort of holarchy and distributed leadership, and everyone creates their own job roles, and it's circle-based and whatever. Um, I find that is often very inefficient and frustrating and needs unbelievable amounts of personal integrity and sort of self-mastery. Most people just don't have that. So... I'm not convinced that's the path, um, but rather than thinking about the size of the team, I would look for some qualities which are trust, mutual trust, collective flow, like ability to get into a flow together, um, reciprocity, so that you are giving to each other and taking and giving and taking, uh, a common purpose. These are some of the ingredients that I would look for, and however that then lands in its um, size or regional location. 
Um, but one thing I also would say is don't change it so too often. Um, because I've go, I've, I've met some, I've met some clients who've gone through seven reorganizations in, you know, 14 months or something. And it's like, I don't know how anyone can deal with the stress of that yeah. and get anything done. You yeah. know, how do you, how do you make progress if you're always changing before you recognize the change? Listen, if you asked my team, you know, is Nick always just, you know, stable and consistent? They would say, absolutely not. We're always changing stuff. We're always updating things, changing terms, changing our tools, updating a, new, a toolkit, a, a changing a brochure, because we're learning all the time about what we do, even I've done it for almost 25 years. But that's different from wholesale reorganization over and over again, yeah. where yeah. you have to reply, reapply for your jobs and all that kind of stuff. And if you're going to do all that, that's fine. But then you have to have unbelievably good skills are holding space for people to feel safe yeah. um, while you they re- you reorganize them. And most people don't do any of that stuff. You know, you get a call from HR, you know, you need to apply from your job on this website server in the next 12 days, you know. Yeah. You know, what? Yeah. Well, no one told me this, you know, et cetera. So uh, I go in the, in the book, I go into a little bit some of these things around holding space, psychological safety, emotional safety, um, trust, um, how you help people see feel seen and heard and safe without going into codependency where you're no longer their boss or leader. You're some kind of weird sort of, you know, some kind of weird relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Don't want yeah. that either. Yeah. Then particularly with all this sort of entitlement culture and melodrama that people seem to take with them. You don't want to be like responsible for their happiness because you're not, it's not your job. Yeah. Um, and that's a really nuanced line, I think. Yeah, I'm interested to get into that a little bit. My next question uh, is a little bit about the book. Um, your book, Now Lead the Change, sets out seven life-changing and world-changing principles. Can you elaborate on those principles? Oh, I can. Uh, you might not have the time for it. But um, basically, them. so about five years ago, I wrote my first book, six years ago. And in it, I realized I wasn't just writing a book. I was codifying a methodology. And I hadn't even understood that. I didn't know that was what I was doing with my life. And um, over, you know, five years, that's devolved and evolved, involved in this. This is my fourth book. And in it, I set out the bare bones of this methodology. And as I wrote it, I realized it could be chunked down into seven really important areas. Um, and each one can be used for yourself or, or for your company. They're, 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 they're sort of as above, so below. They, they're fractal. Uh, fractal principles, um, and um, they move. They go from number one, principle one. Um, we call it Gem One um, of biotransformation theory. Is that your mind and body is one thing, not two things. And if you want to become a master at yourself, you have to become a master at both the body of your being as well as your thoughts. Um, and that opens up a whole range of interesting insights about um, embodying change. Um, uh, feeling what you're feeling rather than just thinking what you're thinking, all that kind of stuff. And then the seventh one right at the other end is how you lead a transformation program or project in yourself or your company. Uh, and there's seven sort of classical steps. So I've tried to chuck, you know, it, it, when you create methodology, it's, it's, and you're trying to pull in brain science, you're trying to put in psychology, coaching, uh, bits of therapy, trauma stuff, how it shows up in, in leaders, um, change processes, innovation. It's a huge amount. Yeah. In fact, basically, it's everything in the world. You could you could end up talking about everything. So you have to put boundaries around things. And so like these seven principles are what I realize 
the, the things I know really, really well. And that's what I want to teach people. Um, and so we're actually taking those seven and developing them into a new book at the moment with my business partner, who's also my wife. Um, hashtag not for everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, and we're turning that into a bigger book that explores these seven principles. That's not a specifically a leadership book. This is the sort of light version for leaders who are too busy to go deep into uh, everything from creative brain networks yeah, yeah. to Taoism. You know, it's too much. You know, how who's got the time? Yeah, I love it and uh, <laughs> appreciate the two different options. Yes. <laughs> um, Nick, you have a methodology that I read about uh, called the that you use for transformational leadership called the switch on way. Can you uh, explain that? Yes, yeah, so switch on way was the first title of this methodology five years ago, um, and then we've up we've actually decided it has it needs to have its own name, which we're now calling biotransformation theory. Okay, and biotransformation theory it's got these seven principles, but the basic idea of it is um, it brings together three let's say three rivers into one ocean. Uh, and the ocean is all about how you make change happen in people. And one thing you got to remember about people, which we so easily forget, is they are biological machines. They're not not even machines. Sorry, I should be correcting myself. They are biological organisms. There you go. And yes, thank you. Um, correct, and yeah. <laughs> one of my little memes is um, we are not algorithms. We are organisms. There um, go. And uh, so we're biological organisms. And yet, as I often ask, you know, a bunch of hundred leaders in a room, I say, put your hand up if you spent more than a um, hundred hours or ten thousand hours mastering your biology. Uh, you know, one person puts their hand up. Put your hand up if you've put, you know, more than a hundred. Most people haven't spent more than an hour of their entire education and executive development understanding this thing. Uh, which if you could see me, I'm whacking my head to go, this head and this biology, this gut is a massively complex, what's the most complex organism in the known universe. And biotransformation theory tries to create some certainty, some predictability around how you transform it. Um, and that means you have to understand some biology, but you also have to understand some psychology. Um, and actually you have to understand, I believe, something around consciousness and uh, the meaning and qualities of our existence, uh, which is something around philosophy or spirituality, depending on, you know, what your lens is. Yeah. Um, do you get into that at all with your theory? Uh, like, you know, we, we have, as human beings, right, we all have these preconceived biases uh, towards whatever it is that we believe in, despite whether or not we try to push our agenda onto others. Um, a lot of what I do is based off of my Christian worldview. Uh, what about your, your book and your theory? Is that based on like, did you completely eradicate any of your spiritual beliefs or is there a reminiscence of that in the theory? It's a really good question because one of the things I'm learning as a leader is to be more honest about my spiritual connectivity and that it's the, I guess, the ultimate base of all my transformational work. And I say that because and I didn't want this to be the case because I was a, a, a really hardcore atheist in one point in my life. I was a scientist. Um, not saying all scientists are atheists, but it goes with a lot of the territory, yeah. uh, particularly where I studied um, at Cambridge, where it's really, you know, sciencey. Yeah, <laughs> so um, I got rid of all that stuff and I was like, I'm just a believe in science. That's all I want to do. And one thing I learned, uh, having tried a lot of coaching and psychology that are devoid of any form of spirituality. It's been taken out. So Freud wanted to take out the yeah. religion out of his uh, psychoanalysis is that 
the really tough stuff, the stuff that grabs you in the gut and chokes up your heart, um, the pain you feel um, with yourself, the criticism, the the lockdown, the, the, the stress within, I don't believe it can be released until you heal your heart in whatever way you have to do that. And I don't think you can heal your heart fully without some form of spirituality. And that is a very wide open thing. I don't have a particular creed or dogma, but I do believe we all need to find a source of stability in our hearts that allow us then to be flexible and agile in our leadership behaviors. Um, and I've discovered that source for me is something called love or connection or um, oneness or, you know, there are many different words for it. So I do suggest to leaders that they do go on some kind of existential discovery mission um and i'm getting more brave in being really honest about that without venturing into um my personal sort of um uh spiritual framework um and making it very non you know very ecumenical i think is the term um but yes i do believe particularly in this crazy world we live in at the moment without something stable within which you can call love or purpose in fact i call purpose love in action um i don't think it's very easy to stay grounded and safe and help others feel grounded and safe yeah. yeah i can i completely agree obviously like i mentioned earlier i'm a christian and i'm pretty bold about that um but despite what people believe i think um it's very difficult to step outside of yourself when all you believe in is yourself yeah uh, so to see a greater vision to have the humility to lead the change pun intended yeah. Um, I think you need to recognize that there's probably something bigger and greater out there. Uh, so, but that's not what this conversation is about. So we'll <laughs> transition. Um, what's the greatest obstacle, Nick, that you've had to experience or overcome to get where you are today? And how did mm. you, how did you do that? That's amazing uh, question. So, I mean, I live what I preach. I, I eat my own caviar slash um, dog food. Mm. Uh, you everyone gets to decide. Um, and so I am using my tool set and methodology every day to transform myself. And the opening for transformation is pain and suffering, blockage, obstacle, challenge. Um, so if I haven't done my own, what I call inner work uh, through reflection time, processing time, then usually I get woken up in the middle of the night uh, with an urgent fear or issue to engage with. Um, and I do my work then. Um, I try and recommend do preempting the crisis uh, of our lives rather than living in the drama of them. Um, but that is, you know, reality of, of, of human being. We don't always have the time to process. So, um, and one other thing I also teach leaders is we're often, there are often life themes that we return to as a challenge over and over again in different forms. So let's say we um, struggled to feel safe with a father figure, then that will often be something that will come up in different formats and ways um, as we go through our lives. So one of the sort of big ones for me, one of the themes for me, has always been um, feeling like I belong, um, which can show up as, um, uh, you know, uh, what they call it, um, where you think you're a, a phony um, and you question yourself all the time. Yeah, imposter syndrome, that can show up there. It can show up um, in my earlier career being like 
pay to be the innovation, disruptive innovation guy, which is really great for disruptive innovation guy. It's not so great for leadership guy because um, you can't be the maverick on the side all the time. So I've had to learn how to find belonging in myself, belonging to our world, and then belonging in a group of people who are often extraordinarily different from me. Um, from all sorts of different races, genders, versions, businesses, upbringings. Um, so that's probably one of my great challenges is for me to um, uh, feel a sense of belonging, um, which as I've found it within me and within my work, I've become a much better person at leadership development um, and innovation development, actually. So I can still go into Maverick Guy if I need to. You know, I can yeah. still I have that archetype really powerfully within me. Um, but often when you're holding space for people to make some pretty bold shifts in their, really in their consciousness um, and their entire life's meaning, um, you need to, they need to feel like you're creating a belonging for them. So by learning how to belong myself, I can create belonging for others. And that's one of the things you learn in this sort of deeper form of leadership development is that when you master something for yourself, um, you can then master it. You can then provide it to others. Uh, in fact, Tony Robbins once said on stage where I was there, uh, you can't give what you don't have. Yeah. You can't give the gift of transformation if you don't have transformation in you. You can't give the gift of compassion if you don't have compassion in you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that's been a big one for me. There are others, obviously. For sure. I appreciate the transparency. And I, I can definitely empathize, I think, because... Um, if you've ever spent any time around me, which you haven't, uh, if you've ever worked on my staff, which you haven't, you would know that at the very least, I'm a change agent. Um, the status quo doesn't do it for me. Uh, I don't know what that is. Like, I think it's probably growing up for me. It was a constant state of change. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily good, but it was, we were moving a lot of times and I was in and out of trouble all the time. And so it was just like life was never steady for me. So I, I live in a way that's just like that, except for it's progressive. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I can empathize with like that feeling of like, do I belong? Everybody else doesn't seem to be on the same page with like progressive change on the day to day. So sometimes I have to recognize like, yeah, I am an innovator, but I'm also an average Joe when I want to be, you know what I mean? So it's like, I can fit in because that's important as a leader is to not be so abstract and like maverick, like you said, right? Like, I don't want everybody to look at me like the outlier when it's my company, you know, like, um, but at the same time, I do need to be the outlier when it calls for it. So I can definitely empathize with like, not registering myself as one or the other. I'm, I am whichever I need to be and I can do that. And I'm cool with it, you know? Um, so that's, uh, like I said, I appreciate the transparency and I can empathize too. Sometimes I wonder if I'm the only one. <laughs> no, I mean, I do believe that we all have developmental fixations or blockages in our development as, as whole human beings. Um, and that um, our crises are essentially the moment where a certain way of being stops working. Um, and then the invitation to transform is the crisis. Yeah. Uh, and crisis in Greek, turning point doesn't mean a bad thing. It's just a moment to go, oh, this isn't working anymore. You know, I'm using the management techniques that I was taught by a guy who actually learned his in 1953 from a staff sergeant at, you know, uh, a Korean yeah. War training center. And I'm just repeating that. It's not working. These 23-year-olds are not interested in me telling them how to be in an aggressive way. Okay, transformation yeah. um and then once we do it we then can gift it to others and we can bring others along 
um, with us. And, and that's what I mean by this leadership. If leadership is about maintaining the status quo, then you're not helping others change. And for me, if there's nothing to change, you don't need leadership. You just need management. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So, you know, if you can flip that around, you know, um, and another way of saying it, and I just put this out on a Facebook today, actually, is we have to heal our heart to lead wholeheartedly. Um, and that's partly what I mean by self-transformation is there are always bits of pain um, left over from other parts of our lives. Um, and if we transform it in our leadership, we also transform it in other parts of our lives. And you know who really loves that? Our loved ones. They yeah. are really down with that. They're like, yeah, this whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's great advice. Nick, what are you most excited about when you think about the future? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so personally, I'm very excited. We're, we're about to launch a leadership program for the first time that's open to anyone rather than um, just for corporates. So we've all, over the last 20 years, we only ever run programs for corporates. Um, and that means trimming and tucking things that they don't want and getting rid of stuff. So we've actually, for the first time ever, about to launch a leadership program with everything in it that I think is vital and useful. So I'm super excited about doing that. Um, and being sort of open kimono about it and saying, this is the sort of the glory of what we do. And if you don't want it, don't have it. That's good. Yeah, so that's yeah. really exciting. Um, also very excited about um, developing an app, um, which I've been doing for about eight years, but not in code, in thinking and proposals and writing. So I'm actually hitting ground with some actual app development. So kind of like what happens after a meditation app, where do you go then? Um, and that's kind of what we want to develop with this methodology an app for that. And then on a more global point of view, at the end of this book, Now Lead the Change, I there's a whole sort of outgoing chapter, outro, about what I'm calling the regenerative renaissance. Um, and I'm starting to see within this pandemic and within the climate crisis and other big issues, societal issues, um, we're all realizing that what we got, what got us here isn't going to get us to a regenerative system in 100 years or even 20 years. And so I'm excited about how we can recalibrate capitalism, not get rid of it, just recalibrate it away from just profit and numbers and bring in some qualities around community, caring, compassion, um, and redesigning our business models so they are regenerative. And if you haven't heard that term, it's it's Walmart have just declared they're going to be a regenerative business in 20, 30 years. So regenerative just means, I mean, it's very complex, but what it basically means is we leave the world better than how we found it. Yeah. Our human systems, archaeological systems, our economic systems. Yeah. And for me, that is the most compelling thing. I love business, but I know business unfettered from caring and compassion turns quite da damaging to our world damaging to our psyches with you know, horrible marketing. It's damaging to our ecosystems with oil and pollution. Yeah. And so this opportunity is arising now, which is if we switch ourselves on, if we switch up our leadership capacities and we work together with others from other companies, sectors, whatever, can we shift our systems to be regenerative uh, and usher in a regenerative renaissance? And I think for the next X amount of time I've got left on this beautiful um, earth. That's my kind of challenge. What does it look like? How do we develop it? How do we unfold it? Don't know. It's going to be different for every company. Um, they have to live through it. It's like a it's like a massive version of innovation project. You know, how do we become regenerative? And that's kind of what's floating my boat from a kind of um, geopolitical. That's exciting work. stuff. Yeah.
In your opinion, Nick, what, what do you think makes a good leader? If you had to list one, two, or three characteristics. Oh, so, um, in our work, we have actually 12 skills and 12 qualities that we think are useful to learn. But let me just pick right now what I think. Um, I think I'll just go with the C's because that's always easy for me to organize my head around. Connected, connected to yourself and others. Um, not walking around with a big gaping hole in your heart and a sort of empty zone in your in your being. Connected with others not always their best mate, not always, you know, a friend or whatever, but connected. You can find connection with people and ultimately your customers, right? That's ultimately who you have to connect with. So connected, um, I'm going to go for creative, um, able to have new thoughts, to challenge your own assumptions, um, to take coaching, to be humble, to be, to question the things that got you where you got to and go, you know what, maybe I don't know, actually. Um, uh, and I'm open and maybe you do know, but at least have the question. Um, and I'm going to go for one which I really work on a lot with our leaders is caring. Um, and I mean caring about yourself, self-care, big thing. Um, but let's stretch beyond self-care. Let's go into team care. That's a really beautiful thing to care about your team. Again, you're not their dad. You're not their mum, You're not their parent. You're not their best mate, not their lover or partner, but you are their leader and you can care for them within a, uh, a boundary. Um, and then caring for your customers, their communities, um, you know, the people you work with. What you don't want to be is like a big soggy heart that just sort of plops around because that's not helpful to anyone. Um, but caring, it's I think, is profitable. A, yeah, it is. Well, it has been. And I would say, actually, I don't know if it's going to last that much longer. Um, so creative, caring, connected. Got it. Uh, what do you think contributes the most to business success? And I'll give you a couple examples. Um, but at least what you've seen in these corporations, uh, example would be market timing, right? Um, mm -hmm. Leadership capability, Definitely. Teamwork, market conditions, the model, the product, the culture. Which one of those do you think it weighs most heavily on long-term business success? I'm going to go for the culture. Um, you know, the old saying, um, culture, strategy for breakfast. Um, you can have the best plan, strategy, idea, business model, canvas, product design, if you can't get people to deliver it to time, to budget, and to quality, it's not going to work. Um, now, within culture for me is leadership culture, and that's all part of culture. Um, but I think culture is the ultimate place where businesses live or die beyond the market power they had from the industrial age, the monopolies or whatever, the, the access to capital or whatever. Um, and you can see that even in Uber, right? So Uber had all this great cha-cha-cha, but... It was their culture, unethical culture, that almost put, pulled them down and certainly ended one, one person's career. So um, I think ultimately you have to tend to your culture, but obviously that's not enough. You still have to get stuff done, you know, by, you know, end of play today. So there's always this balance between um, culture and just getting stuff done. And that somewhere between the two is, um, is, uh, is um, where it happens. But I will say something else. I do also think deep insight into your customers is ultimately also where innovation and, and transformation occurs is really getting what they're get, getting and where you think they're going to go in the next two, five to five years. That's also really you know, penetrating insight. Yeah. Foresight into the future. Yeah. Which is, uh, takes a lot of digging that doesn't come naturally. Well, it does. And also, um, it's, uh, you know, they say, you know, the future's in the present. It's just not equally distributed. Um, you can see weak signals 
of the future in the present, but you have to look and you have to open your eyes and open your inner eyes as well. And one of the things I actually I tip to people is uh, my first business, we did a lot of innovation work, but actually a lot of innovation work is market research. So we would go and talk to potential customers, non-customers, um, anti-customers, and sit with them and try and understand them and feel them. And that developed for me what I now call sort of my consumer intuition and sort of sense um, that something's really going to work. And so when someone like Steve Jobs says, well, we don't do focus groups, that's actually not uh, a accurate and b you don't have to do endless focus groups if you're if you are have developed a refined consumer or customer intuition which comes about through listening to customers talking to them yeah, chatting connected to your customers for sure yeah. so i've got some um somewhat rapid fire questions i like to close the podcast out with uh the first one is what do you think your 10 year older self would tell you today Whew, chill out, dude. It's all going to happen in the natural time of it happening. It always has done. Uh, so keep your ambition, keep your energy flowing, but also chill out. And I think I've already listened to that 10-year-old self, but I, I think I have some more some more to go. You know, Chill out, dude. I love that. Mine's often very similar. <laughs> um, Nick, who's your favorite person that you're following on social media right now, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook? Oh, great question. And I'm actually going to be really embarrassed and say I don't actually follow anyone. I, I have sort of decoupled from social media a little bit. Um, Not bad. Um, but I will tell you there are some podcasts that I, I think are absolutely okay. astonishing. And one of them um, is uh, uh, the ladies um, at uh, one by NPR called Invisibilia. And it's all about sort of science, psychology, social, sociology, but, but very, very accessible. Um, and they do like an hour long deep dive into a certain story that then opens up big thoughts about how we work and has major relevance to, to leaders because it's about, um, essentially human science. I'll have to check that out. Two of my favorite, not that you asked, but, uh, (laughs) I have like probably top, top five, but two of them are NPR. One is hidden brain. Yes. um, And then one is how I built this, you know, because exactly. Love those stories. NPR, man. They've just the quality of their production and the the effort that goes in. Obviously, the money as well, because effort is cost money. Um, but I really love how that they really they craft something beautiful with their with their storylines and and very entertaining. um, You could tell their their podcasts are edited far greater than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, interviews and everything. It's just really fascinating. So highly recommend anybody listening to this one to check out basically anything from NPR. Lately, I've been enjoying um, it's money something. I don't know, but interesting to learn more about something money. doesn't matter. Um, one more question. Well, three more questions. What are your top three favorite books? Oh, um, so I do. So there's gotta be a couple of favorites. Say one of them, which I've read in multiple different translations and multiple times of the Tao De Jing, um, by Lao Tzu. Um, although, unknown who it's actually by. Uh, Lao Tzu just means old master. Uh, and when if I'm feeling gnarly or grappling with something, I pick up a, the, one of the versions I've got and open a chapter and let it let its poetry help me find flow again. So that's... Um, what was the name of the book again? Tao De Jing okay. uh, by Lao Tzu, Chinese philosophy, Taoist philosophy, uh, T-A-O uh, for Tao De Jing. And there's some people write it D-A-O. Um, so that's one of the books. Um, I'm going to have to say the Lord of the Rings because um, 
I haven't read it for many years, but I've seen the movies three or four times with my kids. Uh, and in fact, the other day, my 11-year-old was getting into the sort of backstory of it. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to the office and I'm going to grab you the original books that I read. So I just plonked them on his bed. So he's just started getting involved with them, which has sort of brought me all That's back right. to that. Um, uh, and what else? I mean, I, I read voraciously um, and um, uh, I read a lot. So it's hard to, I'm just going to think of one more. I'm going to think of another one from my spiritual readings called the Bhagavad Gita which is from the Hindu spiritual tradition. Um, and it's a big story, you know, about Krishna and a guy in battle. But the bit of it that's really powerful is it's, is it's um, about being committed to vision and, and, and a project, but not being attached to whether it makes you rich and famous. Um, so it's about loving something and giving your full self to a vision of a better world, but not caring whether, you know, you're on the front cover of uh, Forbes because of it. It's good. I'm sure a lot of people could gain some value from that. Yes. Um, Self-included. What's the best purchase you've made recently under $100? Oh, my God. That's a good one. Let me think. Um, I am trying to come out of an Amazon Prime addiction. Um, so Today's, today's <laughs> a good day to back out of that. Uh, it's hard to, uh, to share with you that, actually. Um, let me see. Let me see. What have I bought? I actually bought something really good. Uh, for the family, we bought um, a uh, a new bike rack uh, because my wife, uh, who is almost 50, had a breakthrough this year learning to ride a bike. Uh, and so now all four of us are riding. And during the lockdown, we've just been going. We live in a beautiful part of the world and we've just been driving to a place, getting the bikes out and tootling along um, on our bikes. So having mobility has been really um powerful for the, for us as a, as a family. It's been really good, actually. Love that. Last question. Um, if you could put anything up on a big blank billboard on the busiest intersection, you know, what would it say? <laughs> Another great one. Um, I'm going to go with um, hurt hearts, hurt people, um, healed hearts, transform people. I love that. Thank you for that. Nick, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Um, it's been a pleasure learning from you, uh, having this conversation. This is one of the most insightful and thought-provoking conversations I've had in a little while. Um, how can our audience find you? I know you mentioned you're not super active on social media. Is there a, a platform that's best to reach you or learn about you? Obviously, you got yeah. to yeah, um, I'm on I'm on Twitter and I'm I'm actually starting to tweet again because I've been in book writing mode and now I'm kind of in book sharing mode. So uh, Nick Jankel, uh, Jankel with a J on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, Switch On World. Uh, my company's called Switch On. Uh, but the best thing I said to people is go on our website, switchonnow.com and sign up for the email because we do send emails. Uh, I actually love email. I think email is the best way of sharing ideas. I'm also on Medium. I write a lot on Medium. So you can find me on Medium um uh at nick jankel as well great well again i really appreciate you being on the show nick and uh i'm sure the audience would agree this is a really great conversation i hope you have a good rest of your week brother thanks again thank you